Alrighty, good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How you doing this morning? Good, man. I love the energy. Man, I was, I was starting to tear up during that final song. Do you guys like that final song? Like, man, the, the reckless love of God that's, that's so powerful. We're actually going to talk about that song a little bit, but let me try this again. How are you doing this morning? Good, man. I love the energy. I love the grace in this place. If you would, turn to someone next to you. Give them the fist bump and say, I'm glad to see you this morning because we're glad to see everyone as we get into week two of Contagious, and it's the second week of 2019, which means it's the first week we've abandoned our resolutions. Good job. Uh, who would admit already that you had a resolution or a goal you set this year, and you've already abandoned it? Awesome. There's one or two that are bold and courageous about being real. Uh, listen, this is not at all a conversation about resolutions or goal setting or any of that. I think that's all, all valid and important, but, but, but I, I love to, to study. I, I love to, to look into just what makes people tick. I love just to watch people and see how they respond to different situations. We set out this year with a couple of big goals as a church, one of which is we want to make this hour, 1010, the most exciting hour Arbordale Winter Haven has all week long happening right here. I love the energy as we build up that culture, as we say, man, we want to be about seeing God move, and we want there to be freedom. And here's the thing, freedom looks really different for a lot of different people. Uh, when we gather together, here, here's the thing, especially if you grew up like I did, if you grew up in, in maybe more traditional church, you come in and, and like freedom scares you a little bit. Like, you want to get into it, and again, freedom is going to look vastly different. I'll get to that in a second. But you come in, and, and, and people start getting into it, and you're like, oh, I, I want to experience that, and, and my freedom's right about here. <laughs> like, that's as far as I can go. Like, I, I grew up in a traditional church. If I do this, I might get in trouble. And, and, and the thing is, is that as freedom looks different, for some of us, that means, man, when we have a, a moment where we're experiencing God's presence, that is, man, it's like this. And if that's where you're at, we want you to feel comfortable doing that this morning. If it is, man, God's speaking to me right now, and I just want to sit back, and I just want to soak in what he's doing, and I might not be singing at all, I want you to know that that's okay as well. The freedom looks vastly different. Your response could be, man, right now I'm just so aware of God's presence, and I'm so appreciative of what he's doing, that I just want to kneel in, in his presence. And we want to let you know that as we build up this culture as a church, of saying we want there to be freedom, we want there to be excitement, that, that that might look differently for different people, and that's entirely okay. We want you to be free to be able to do that, to experience God's presence. Because we've set some big goals that we want to see accomplished this year, and it only happens when, when we remove some of the religious garb that kind of clogs our life at times, and we start to experience that freedom. And that's true when it comes to uh, goals as a church, but it's also true when it comes to goals as individuals. See, I was saying earlier, I love to watch how people respond to different situations. And I love to watch people at the beginning of the year because they set out to set some specific goals. Again, this isn't a conversation on goal setting, but it's more a conversation on what makes people tick. Because I, I did some research this last couple of weeks, and, and I think it was Fortune Magazine did an article a few years back that said they, they did a study, and they figured out that in the average year, only 8% of people who set a goal at the beginning of the year accomplished that goal by the end of the year, only 8%. And of course, what they're trying to do is they're trying to market an article where they said, if you want to accomplish your goals, here's some things about your goals that you want to make sure that they're specific, that they're measurable, all those things. But also, here's who you have to be as a person. You see, I, I love when I, when I meet people who are really goal-driven. Because they'll set a goal and they'll say, no matter what, I'm going to be reckless about pursuing that goal this year. That it might mean in my life I have to let go of some other things that are holding me back. 
But I want to be reckless and relentless about the pursuit of that goal. Last week, we kicked off a series here. We talked about really what it means to have joy in our pursuit of following Jesus and have a faith that is contagious. You see, I said as we kicked off the year that we're going to look a lot in the book of Acts because the book of Acts is the history of the early church. It literally accounts from the time that Jesus leaves the earth to the the advent, the launching of of the church, what the church age was going to look like. And and it went from where Christianity was, was a small group of followers about the resurrection of Jesus to this amazing worldwide phenomenon. But the book of Acts details how that's beginning and how the early church starts to, starts to spread. And we said this last week that as we looked at this, that, that if we want to see, if we want to be about movements happening, we said this last week, we said movers accommodate, but stagnant people want to be accommodated. Movers are the people that come in and say, I want to see God move in my life. I want to see God move in my church. And so I want to get out of the way and do whatever I can to serve God's spirit moving in the church and in the community. I want, I want to be about accommodating people and letting people know that they matter. I'm not walking in on a Sunday morning saying, what can I get from this? But what can I give towards this? And the thing is, is that we, it's been ingrained in our mindset that, that we tend to, just how the American culture has been, is that we tend to gravitate towards things that, that feed us rather than us feeding others, but we discover that we find more joy in our service of others. And so movers are people who say, I want to be accommodating, rather than people walk, who walk in and say, I want to be accommodated. Again, I grew up in a very traditional church where if, if you came in and sat in someone's pew and that was their pew, they would walk in and they'd start a fight about that. They wanted to be accommodated. Movers don't come in. Some of y'all, like, it's, it's, shaking, it's shaking your mind going to one service because you're like, I have always sat there. And now in the second service, there's somebody else that always sat there. So it's a race now <laughs> to see who gets there first. But, but movers come in and say, I want to figure out how to accommodate people. The early church got this. And that's why we talked about last week that, that Jesus chose this ragtag group of people. He didn't choose leaders. He chose a ragtag group of people and said, we're literally going to change the world. We're going to set the world on fire. The message is going is to spread like wildfire, not because each of you is really capable, but because the message itself is so powerful. And because of, not, not because of the individuals that he used, but because of the power of the message, that message started to spread. And this week we're going to pick up almost where we left off last week. We're going to look a little bit at one verse and we're going to go into the next chapter of the book of Acts. But we left off with, there was just a story about Stephen, an early Christian who was, who was persecuted and killed because of his faith. And, and, and then what happened, the result of that was the church dispersed from Jerusalem. The leaders of the church stayed there. The leaders of the church said, we're going to bury Stephen, we're going to take care of things here. But for everybody else, You're going to spread out, and the message of Jesus organically started to spread across the world because of the faith of, I'm going to switch microphones here if we can do that real quick. There we go. The message of Jesus started to spread, not through the the leaders per se. The message of Jesus started to spread through, through the regular individuals who were going to church because they realized that idea that movers accommodate and that stagnant people were there to be accommodated 
And so the message of Jesus started to spread both through the organization of the church, but it also started to spread organically. The message of Jesus, just because of who they were, as they left their hometown, as they left their home city, and as they started to go to different regions of their known world, they left and took the message of Jesus with them because they said, this is the one thing that we can hold on to. This is the one thing that we love. And because of that, they said, we're going to take that message with us. Now, right in the midst of, of the story of between Stephen's persecution and the message of the church going out, there was one verse that for just a second seemed a little bit out of place if you didn't know the entire context. In fact, if we didn't have, if you didn't grow up going to church, if you didn't have that context, and you just picked up this one beginning of Acts 8 verse 1, you'd wonder why is this guy even mentioned as part of this story? You see, we have the persecution of the church. We have Stephen being martyred for his faith. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, it says this, And Saul approved of his persecution. And then it goes on and talks about what the church does. Like, it's like, why was this one guy, amidst all the people that were there and party to the persecution, why was this one guy mentioned? Well, if you have some church background at all, you know that Saul also went by the name of Paul. Saul was his given Jewish name. But later on, in fact, in just a short amount of time, we're going to read, Jesus changes Paul's life. Paul was a citizen of Tarsus, which is a, a, a province of Rome. And because of that, Saul would have also had a Roman name. It was Paul. And later on, he goes by the name of Paul, and he becomes the biggest missionary and evangelist the world had ever seen. And so I look at that, and, and I look at what we read earlier in Acts chapter 7, and we see that Saul is part of this, per, this, this persecution. And I ask the question, I ask this question, which is a really, really important question. What would it take for someone who is so vehemently opposed to Jesus to become his follower? You see, we read in Philippians chapter 3, we read this, that Paul says about himself that Christ has apprehended me. So Saul slash Paul goes from being a persecutor of the church to saying, but Jesus came and apprehended me, and now I'm giving my life towards this. So what would it take for a person who is so vehemently opposed to Jesus to become his follower? So I wanted to get just a sample, a test sample of, of what do my friends think about this topic? So I asked earlier this week on social media, I asked this question, and this was for people who are from Christian backgrounds, people from, from non-Christian backgrounds, people who are agnostic, people who were maybe of other faiths. I asked them, what would it take for you to abandon your beliefs and core values and run 100% in the opposite direction? What would it take for that to happen? And, and I'll be honest, I got in the responses from the silly to the sublime. I got one person that said it would take ice cream. I got others that said maybe a million dollars. But then I got some others who took it really seriously. And they said, well, if I was really going to abandon my core values and my beliefs, here's what it would take. And they, they outlined, and a lot of it came back, back down to a couple of items, but a lot of it came back down to I would have to face a series of facts that were so irrefutable it caused me to question what I believed. If I had enough facts that were laid out in front of me, and some took this really, really seriously, if I had enough facts that were so irrefutable that I had to abandon my faith and, and my core values, that's what it would take. Now, I want us to see, because that's what's happening with, with Paul. Paul says, man, I used to be part of the people who were persecuting the church, and I abandoned all of that to go and pursue Jesus. And I want us to see what a big deal this is because 
Paul is not just like, like for a lot of us today, we'd say we believe. I think we, as we gather together as a church, most of us would say, I associate with the beliefs of Jesus. I believe that he died, he was buried, that he rose again, that he set the church out. Like we gather together, and I don't think everybody here believes that. And if not, we're glad that you're here. I don't think we all believe that, but probably for most of us, that determines our worldview. That's why we're here. We believe that, but it's not like we're in, in, in fighting opposition of people who believe opposite us. We view other people with respect. We view them with dignity. We're going we're gonna to love them and take care of them and support them. I think that's what the church should do. But that wasn't Paul's take on things. You see, for Paul, he had developed... And not just he, but he and his friends, he and his, his, the people who were on the same page as him, they had developed a system that was based entirely upon the things that they did. And in fact, they looked spiritual because of the way they followed a given set of rules. And so Paul could walk around on the average day and pat himself on the back. In fact, if you read earlier in Philippians chapter 3, he actually says, I have the pedigree that everybody wanted to have. He said, I was... I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like I was supposed to be. I was from the right tribe of, of, of Israel, and, and because of that, I was a Pharisee. And he says, when it comes to being a zealot about my faith, I was a persecutor of the church. So this isn't just the average person of faith that says, well, I viewed all of those other faiths with a marked indifference. in the opposite direction. I was running this way, I was persecuting the church, and now I'm running this way and I'm running with the church. What would it take? Well, ironically, in Acts chapter 8, it begins with Saul approved of the persecution. In Acts chapter 9, we're going to read the entirety of the story, which is a longer section of Scripture. We're going to read 19 verses. But it says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest. So he's still like piping mad. He says, I don't like what they're doing. I'm breathing threats. I'm breathing murder. I want to make sure that this movement stops. I'm really animated against this. So he goes to the high priest and he asks this. He asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if any be found belonging to the way, the, the name way there is the early name for what the outsiders viewed the church as, is the, the, the way of Jesus, they viewed him as the way. So he, he asked for permission, anyone found belonging to the way, men or women, that they might be bound and brought to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So he's on, on this road to Damascus, and, and he's walking, and, and his whole purpose is, I'm going to walk this route, and if I see anybody that belonged to this, this offshoot, this, this Christianity, I'm going to make sure along the way that anybody, men or women, it doesn't matter who they are, I can, I can bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem to face persecution. And as he's walking along this road, directly trying to persecute the church, he comes upon this, this bright light. It was so bright that it says in verse 4, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said this in verse 5, who are you, Lord? And the response was, I am Jesus whom you're, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. Watch this. One of the things, whenever I read Scripture, to make Scripture alive, I love to put myself in, in, in the role, because these are real people who are going through real-life stories. And so imagine what Paul's going through at this point, but it also says there's some people traveling with him. And it says about these men, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So, so Saul's traveling, he sees this bright light, he hears his voice, he starts having a conversation. The men don't see any of that, but they hear the voice and they're hearing this conversation. And I'm sure all of them, their, their minds are blown, they're encountering Jesus. So it says in verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, he's blinded. So they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's traveling to Damascus. He has his bright light. He has this encounter. He experiences who Jesus is. He understands, man, I've really messed this whole thing up. He's blinded. He makes it to Damascus, being led by hand. Once he gets there, they, they, they put him up there and he doesn't eat. He doesn't drink anything for three days. And then in verse 10 it says this. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And I said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said this, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority for the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias says, says God, I'm, I'm with you. I'm on team Jesus. But you want me to go to this guy, Paul, or this guy Saul, and I've heard all about him. I've heard what he's done to the church. Like he's killing people who, who act like me, who believe like me. And now you want me to go to this person who has a note that he can now bind me. And he says, God, are, are you sure about this one? Like, God, I, I'm, I'm on board. I'll do whatever you want. But as I look at this, this doesn't make sense for, for my long-term goals out of my life. Like, I could be bound and killed because of this. 
So he's saying, God, I'm with you, but, but are you sure about this one? And God's response is this. Go, verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately as he did this, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then it said he rose, he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I look at that, and, and I think about, like, what, what did it take for Saul to have this encounter? He had been so vehemently opposed to Christianity. He was so vehemently opposed to the spread of the message of the way because simply by this uprising, this upstart church, because of what they were trying to accomplish, it threatened his very way of life. And so it wasn't this passive, I'm watching this and I don't like this other faith. It was a very active, I feel threatened by the faith, and because I feel threatened by the faith, I'm persecuting the church. To the point that Paul is converted. And again, he becomes the greatest missionary and ambassador the world's ever seen for the message of Jesus. So my question was, what did it take? And I know that when I asked this of my friends, it was a little bit unfair question. Because most of us have a tendency to say, I believe, over, over the course of my life, I've developed a set of core beliefs that this is who I am. And I don't want to abandon those things, so it would be really hard. You'd have to have some really strong evidence in opposition to what I believe to sway me in the other way. But as I look at what Paul encountered, he didn't really necessarily encounter a whole lot of new information. Maybe what Jesus said to him woke him up to some things that he'd heard in the past. But it wasn't like he'd heard all of this evidence before. He'd been a reader of Scripture. He'd memorized Scripture. He knew what the Old Testament said about the coming of Jesus. He knew what all of that meant. He knew that there were people who were saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Jesus has accomplished all of that. And so for him, none of that information would have been, true, would have been new information to him. At some point, he would have heard all of that. I'm sure at some point because of where he lived, he'd encountered other Christian evangelists who tried to spread the gospel. And each time he heard it, all it led to him getting was more and more frustrated, more and more upset, and a little bit angry and a little bit more given towards his mission of seeing the church squashed. It's not that he didn't have information. He did. What he didn't have is he didn't have the experience. And what changed Paul's life was the experience. He encountered Jesus face to face himself. And because of that, at that point, now it was supernatural what he did. We don't have that experience. But at that point, literally, his life was changed, not because of more facts, not because of more data, but because he experienced and encountered the presence of Jesus in his life and because God chased him down with a reckless love. See, if, if you read the story and you, you put yourself in the shoes of Ananias or the other Christians, later on as, as Paul starts to go to, to, these, to these home groups and he starts to meet with them early on before the message of Paul's conversion starts to spread, 
early on, everyone was suspect. He'd been the enemy. He's putting all of my friends to death. Should I trust him? And this is why one of my favorite people in all of the Bible is a guy by the name of Barnabas. Because Barnabas was the encourager. Every time we see Barnabas encountered in the New Testament, he's encouraging someone in their faith. And when Paul starts to go to the church, and the church says, wait a minute, this is the guy. This is, this is the guy that's most hated. This is the guy I've heard stories about. He wants to kill us. I don't know if I can trust him. That's why Barnabas comes in and says, I'm going to be the encourager. I'm going to vouch for you. I'm going to stand up for you and let them know that you're really on our team. Because Saul's conversion was genuine. And it was real. In fact, I heard this as I was reading this passage and doing some studying. Someone said when we look at the overwhelming evidence of Paul's conversion to Christianity, that outside of the Jesus event itself, Saul's conversion is the most powerful witness to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. I want us to get that because it is facts, it is data that backs this up. That if you take someone who is vehemently opposed to Christianity, he says, I don't like it, I hope they all die. And in just a short amount of time, he's like, no, wait, I'm on their team. Like, that doesn't just happen. Something miraculous took place in his life. And if we're looking for evidence for the truthfulness of what we say we believe as a church, we can look at Paul who says, I used to hate this. I used to want to see these people die, and now I'm on their team. It's such a powerful evidence for, for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus. That they said outside of the resurrection event itself, outside of the Jesus event itself, this is the most powerful witness to the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus of anything that we encounter. Because at the end of the day, God pursued Paul with a reckless abandon. I said earlier how much I love that song that we sang going into the, the message it's a song called Reckless, and, and I know probably a lot of people are not even aware of this, but there's a little bit of controversy in, in some Christian circles about that song because it describes God's love as reckless. And there's some people that don't care for that. They don't like the picture of God being reckless. They like God being in control, and, and reckless sounds like he's not in control. And I read an article a couple of weeks ago about that where, where a guy was writing, and he says, you know what, I love the song except for the added that word reckless in the song. And literally, this guy is well-respected. He's a blogger. And he says, I love singing a song at my church. But he says, every time it gets the word reckless, I just don't sing that word. I don't know how that sounds as you're singing, but that's, that's, that's what he does. And he wrote this whole blog about it. And there was this discussion about it. And, and the thing is, as I was reading that, I was, I was getting a little bit frustrated myself. I, I love that song. And, and I understand where they're coming from. But, but I read this book a few years ago. Uh, some of y'all read this. We went through this a couple of years ago with some, some leadership people at, at the church and stuff. And, and it's, it's called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. He's a, a pastor up in, in New York. Really, really sharp, sharp guy. And someone shared this quote in the middle of this discussion. Uh, Tim Keller's a, a really respected, especially in those circles, really respected pastor, theologian. And he says this. The father's welcome to the repentant son was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or count his sin against him or demand repayment. Then he says this. And, and by the way, this is a story of the prodigal son. It's, it's a story about the father's reckless love for his son, which is a picture of God's love for us. 
It says, Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure, who is nothing if not prodigal towards us, his children. And then it says this, God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. I want us to get that picture right there. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. That when God leaves the 99 to come after us, it looks to the outsider as being reckless because I got to take care of those 99 as well. I got to make sure that they're safe. But God's reckless grace says, I'm going to leave the 99 because if I don't go chase the one that's lost, their greatest hope is gone. And so we sing that song about God abandoning the 99 to go and to pursue the one because we matter. I want to let you know wherever you're at right now in your journey with Jesus. I believe for some of us, we made that thing sure we know that we're following Jesus. For others, we've been fighting him for the longest time. We're kind of dipping our toe in the water saying, I'm checking this thing out, but I'm not sure about any of this. Just as Paul was pursued by God with a reckless love, God's pursuing you and I just as much right now. Because Paul, God looked at Paul, who everyone else wanted to give up on. And Paul said, no, even though the church was frustrated, even though the church was scared, God said, I know that you're scared of what is going to happen, but I'm telling you, if I could take his life and change his life for my glory, it's going to impact the entire world. And it did. And once that happened, once that change started to take place, it changed not just Paul's life, but it changed your life and my life as well. You see, prior to Paul, most of the missionaries were going to people who looked and acted a lot like them. Peter was considered a missionary to the people who were Jewish. When Paul's converted, he becomes a missionary to the Gentiles, and the message of Christianity spreads like it's never spread before. Why? Because the recklessness of God's love drives our relentless pursuit. I want you to see that. The recklessness of God's love drives our relentless pursuit. Once I become aware of the reckless nature by which God loves me, it leads me in my life to a relentless pursuit first of Him. Listen, when we respond, by the way, I asked Justin, I love that song so much. Earlier Last week I asked him, when we do that, I want to do this song again at the end. Because I want a reminder for, uh, for us, man, this is the overwhelming, reckless love that God has for us. And so when we sing that song with an appreciation that God abandoned everything to pursue us, the one who was lost, it changes. God's reckless love for us changes our and drives our relentless pursuit first of him, but then also of the others we come in contact with. See, once I was aware of God's love, once I was aware of the reckless nature of God's grace, I said, now that I've tasted it, I've seen how good it is. And his name is on my lips where I go. I want to make sure that people I encounter, whether they're my friends or whether they're my enemies like Paul was to the church, that they know who Jesus is. You see, the contagious nature of the church, why they got this so much they, they knew, man, God chased us with a reckless love. And now that we've come to understand that and appreciate that, we now have a relentless pursuit of, of him 
but also of those who can become his children because of the grace that he's shown them as well. And that grace is extended to everybody. He said at that moment that Paul, the scales were removed. His vision was restored. He did two things. He got baptized. And he ate. I know there's any spiritual application for the eating other than he was hungry. But he got baptized saying, the thing that I was against before, I'm now aboard. Let's pray together. God, I love this story. I love how your grace wins every single time. It's overwhelming. It's relentless in the way it pursues us. God, I pray this morning. I believe within the sound of my voice, both here and even out on on Facebook Live, God, there are people who are not aware of of your love. They've never been aware of, of, of the reckless nature of your grace. God, if there's someone this morning who says that you've been pursuing them with that reckless love, with that, with that abandon, leaving the 99 to pursue them, God, I pray even today, even this morning, even in this moment, that for the first time they surrendered your love as Paul did. They say, man, I'm ready to be on board. I'm ready to follow Jesus with everything that I have. That, God, you'd give us a reminder on a daily basis of the overwhelming nature of your love. And that, God, we'd see your grace win in people's lives this morning. For the one who doesn't know you or the ten who don't know you, that today would be the day that they come to know you. And for those who do, God, that your name would be on our lips, that as we leave here, we'd encounter people. God, you didn't use leaders of the church to do this. You used everybody in the church to encounter people with the message of Jesus. Here's what Jesus is doing in my life. Here's how he's changing me. And God, that message was contagious. God, allow us to be so. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.